with diseases like BRD and Scouter, we're not aiming to fully eliminate these diseases because we're in a farm environment with live animals and the way these diseases and pathogens work, it's not possible to do that. What we are trying to achieve is reducing the challenge and reducing the severity and incidence of these diseases as much as we possibly can. And that can be done to a really, really high level. Welcome to the Vet Times podcast, a concise, topical, clinical and informative podcast from the people at Vet Times. Neonatal diarrhoea is a common problem found on many cattle farms in the UK and is a major cause of economic losses for farmers, estimated to cost the UK cattle industry around £11 million annually. Fencovis is the most recent addition to the well-established Boehringer Ingwerheim cattle vaccine range. It is licensed to prevent calf scar caused by bovine rotavirus and E. coli K99 to reduce the incidence and severity of scar caused by bovine coronavirus and to reduce faecal shedding in scar caused by bovine rotavirus and bovine coronavirus. Fencovis combines killed antigen with an oil-free adjuvant to deliver optimal safety and efficacy. It comes as a ready-to-use injection available in 1, 5 and 25 dose packs. In this podcast, we speak to independent animal health researcher Jamie Robertson and Bowringer Ingelheim Animal Health Human and Vet Advisor Becca Cavill to explore some of the preventive steps that would be useful to discuss with clients to help reduce the risk of scouring calves. Okay, so we're going to be talking about considerations for calf housing, the sort of early days of calving, neonatal diarrhea and other issues that can be problematic in the first few days of a calf's life. So welcome both of you. How are you? Good, thank you, Paul. Yeah. Yep, thank you very much, Paul. We're here and ready to go. Great stuff. Excellent. So starting off then, can you sort of outline some of the health and welfare challenges facing newborn calves, their keepers and farm vets as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest problem really for calves is that they are born immunologically naive. There isn't a transfer of antibodies across the placenta in cows and they're wholly reliant on having good colostrum management. So from that, that can lead to lots of problems with disease and the likelihood of them getting disease or not. And that has a massive impact, obviously, on welfare of calves. So managing the transition cow and the calving cow are absolutely paramount in protecting the newborn calf. If those things aren't correct, then the newborn calf is not going to be resilient and it's going to be prone to disease. I think early days that we talk about the newborn calf, but I think most people are aware that for the cow, it's almost the sort of the pinch point of the whole year in terms of stress. And therefore, you have a very important part of your business, the cow going through a physiologically very demanding period. As far as the keepers are concerned, I think this is an area that we need to push on with in the future is that I think a lot of people know what's going on, but I think we need to be more realistic about the pressures on the people looking after them. And we're going to come on to that as we go into this, because there are a number of really quite straightforward issues that possibly we've come blind to, because people are they haven't given themselves the opportunity, possibly, to do the jobs that we would like. Hygiene is a very good example. So it's a difficult time anyway. And as, as Becca was saying, we know that a newborn animal, this happens to be a calf, is immunologically naive. And there's a lot of stresses going around. If you happen to be lucky enough to be a calf born in Northern Ireland in the middle of winter, it's a very environmentally stressful time. And I think whilst the industry is slowly understanding this multitude of different pressures, it's all normal. I think what we're trying to do is to sort of get people's understanding of what normal is and how we can manage it. Yeah, I think it's how we can manage them most appropriately and effectively for that specific farm. You know, equally, if you're a calf born on a seasonally calving herd that's maybe indoors and it's quite intensive, 
you know, landing a newborn calf in a calving pen that has seen X amount of cars been born before it has not been cleaned out, you know, and there's a high stocking rate that is equally stressful on the calf and will have an impact on it going forward. So there's been a lot of individual factors and farm specific factors that have to be borne in mind by all concerned. Absolutely. I think that is really important that everything is farm specific. And like Jamie's alluded to, kind of making these jobs easier for the farm staff. If a job is easier and it's more efficient and they're more likely to want to do it and it's more likely to be effective and everyone wins, really. Okay. In terms of the current levels of calf mortality and the causes, has there been quite a bit of research done on this? What can you tell us about the current situation? Yeah, there's a lot out there about calf mortality. And we know that from the APHA, from their uh, data of what tends to cause calf mortality, that in calves under a month of age... Scour pathogens are the most common, along with failure of passive transfer, namely crypto and, and E. coli and rotavirus, the biggest killers of those scour pathogens. And then we see a jump when we go to sort of the calves over a month of age to six months, it jumps to mainly the BRD pathogens. In a survey done back in 2010, it was thought that just under 50% of all dairy heifers suffered from scour. So, you know, that's massive. That's half the basically half the population of our new milking herd going forwards. And 70% of farmers had actually seen deaths due to scour on their farm, which, you know, which is a massive amount. And we think that only around 15% of eligible cattle are actually being vaccinated for scour pathogens. So there's a big hole there, really, in what's going on. So, so yeah, they're the kind of the main, main causes. I think, Paul, again, this is a very useful aspect to discuss, looking at how we can manage and improve it. So to answer Becca's question, there's data from around the world and there's no doubt that early mortality in calves, say, in the first few weeks, diarrhea, scour, whatever we want to call it, is number one, clearly number one. And we're talking about, so John Mee um, in Chagas in Ireland, who's for a long time been very uh, interested in working in this area, a relatively recent piece of work, um, you talk about 7% mortality associated with diarrhea, and that's uh, dairy calves. And global figures, you're running at between 4 to 6% mortality. So these are just numbers. And one of the considerations on individual farms is that scours is normal. So, you know, to have a bit of you know, stuff fleeing around the place and there's another calf of scours, it's like, oh, we've got another calf of scours. And I think part of the future is going to be getting people to sort of step back and sort of say, well, actually, how much do you have? And is this normal? And if, if 7% is normal, then that's where the margins are. That's where the gains are. And that's where for products like a vaccine that can be used on cattle, the producer might go, well, they see that as a cost. And you go, well, actually, if you've got above 4% mortality from scours, there's your loss today. And maybe a way around that is to invest a little bit in the future. So this issue of numbers is something which I think the dairy industry has picked up quite well on, but there's a long way to go. So the point is, it's a very normal thing for scours to occur on a dairy farm and at beef farms. The question that we need to sort of take to individual farms is, well, your normal is actually a bit too high compared to what other people at the top end of your industry are doing. The question is, how do you get there? Yeah, I think quite interestingly as well, you know, when we're talking about on-farm deaths of cattle across the board, we know that over half of those deaths happened before a couple of years of age, and actually 25% of them happened under three months of age. So we're losing a massive amount of animals at a very young age that are, you know, our potential future herd, and that is across the board, whether it's dairy or beef. So it's certainly an area that there's room for further improvement. Things are vastly improving, but we've still got quite a long way to go there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think a last point on farm, which is, 
understandably very difficult is to actually record. It sounds a little bit bizarre, but again, the evidence is quite clear that especially if you get a perinatal death, that there's too many farms, and I'm talking globally now, the research is globally, um, so no point pointing fingers, but if they die in the first couple of days, you know, 48 hours, they don't get recorded at all because the focus especially in the dairy sector, is on the cow and getting her lactating and up on her feet and up and running. And I think, again, this is where we need a bit more honesty about what's going on. And whilst there's be a reluctance on farms for people to, oh, my goodness, is another job, stick it in the book. A pocket book with a pencil should be in every, you know, as part of normal animal production behaviour. And just a, whatever you think it's died off, make a note of that too. And if people do want the paper to refer to if they are interested in calf mortality, there was a really good paper that came out of the University of Nottingham in 2020, Bobby Hyde and Ginny Sherwin, that looks at calf deaths between 2011 and 2018. So it's pretty recent and good further reading. Right. So delving a bit more into it, though, what are some of the key stresses for cows and therefore ensuing welfare implications for calves? Yeah, I think with calf welfare and health, we do always need to look backwards. It's not just a case of what happens to the calf when it pops out and then what we do with it afterwards. You know, we really need, you know, obviously we need to look after cows throughout their lactation, but looking at transition and that period immediately before calving, it's really important. If things are not right there, if the cows aren't being fed appropriately or housed appropriately or they're ill or there's a lot of stress on them, that will have an impact not only on calving itself and the chances of there being dystochia, but also on the quality of the colostrum that that cow is going to produce. And therefore that then impacts the health of the calf afterwards and its ability to absorb those antibodies and to fight diseases that are on the farm. It's a bit of a shame, but in fact, every day is important. Actually, it is for us too. But for the cow, which has been the focus for so long on the milk production cycle, but the evidence has grown over the last 20 years that other periods, you the dry cow period is important, the heifer is important. And we finally got back to the neonatal calf. Funnily enough, that's as important in the first few days as it is when the animal is three years old. And It's fantastic. It's taken a long time coming. But it also goes to before birth. Mm. So actually, the health of the calf is significantly influenced by the animal, its dam, in the period before calving, isn't it, Becca? Absolutely. So, for example, the UK dairy industry is slowly getting a poke in the eye on the fact that our cows can be too hot. Because 20, 30 years ago, virtually nobody kept cows inside in the summer. And now most people do in these big herds. And they're finding out that whilst our conditions are not like Arizona, the combination of 21 degrees centigrade and a damp climate is physiologically too hot. So this is a specific area to answer your question, Paul, about the environment around calving, is that actually a new issue that people need to get in their heads is that some of our pregnant dairy cows will be too hot because of the way they are kept. And that has absolutely clearly scientifically proven you know, has a direct impact on the viability, if you like, of a calf that is born to a, a cow that is heat stressed. So at that point, you go, well, why is it heat stress? You say, well, does it have access to lots and lots of nice clean water to drink? You know, or does it not want to drink the water because it looks like a septic tank? Does it have protection from solar gain? So there's quite a lot happening around what is ultimately the most stressful day of the year, which I've mentioned before. So there's good potential to provide, what is it, Becca, like enough space, enough cooling of its hot, 
and we come to hygiene again. And that kind of feeds into, you know, hygiene very much feeds into the fact that if you've got a high stocking density, it's all about planning, isn't it, really? If you know your seasonal carbon, you're all year round carbon and you've got a pinch point, you need to plan for those times. No good sort of saying, well, my carving pen's fairly empty most of the year, but then actually we've got a lot of cows carving now and then everything just goes out of the window. If you've got a high stocking density, feed space might be limited, water drinking space might be limited, then the calf is landing in a heavily contaminated environment. You know, the cow is more stressed and all these things just add up to, again, affect the calf when it comes out. And, you know, that is our biggest and best investment, the calf, whether it's a beef or dairy animal. You know, that is our biggest investment and the end and the end game, really. So protecting that, well, from before it's born and when it's born is is absolutely paramount. And there is a, a clear and proven impact on production later in life, even if it's scouring at the age of a few days of age, that does have an impact on, on what that cow will do later on. And same for BRD as well. So we touched on it a little bit there, but there were obviously some key mistakes made with housing and carving pens um, generally. I mean, can you outline in a bit more detail what some of these are? Yeah, I think uh, we don't need to be too complex here. I think the lack of space stroke time is a big issue. Not always space, um, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I think what we see and from other people's research is that quite often space in the carving pen or carving area is very generous but that's actually a difficulty too so i'll come back to that in a minute lack of time i think is a key issue on everything to do with hygiene people quote unquote don't have enough time and so they don't do the job properly and i'm sort of saying that that's basically a system failure it's not a criticism it's an observation you know, people that are hard work don't like to be told they're not doing their job properly. My comment is you're working your butts off here, but you're doing a job that isn't effective in terms of animal health. So you need to step back. And I mean, if the milk price is good, don't get more cows. Invest in making what you do at the moment easier because it needs to be more effective. That comes on to facilities that are actually difficult to clean. I've already mentioned space. But quite often, there's a huge amount of space. Obviously, the production sector goes, it's not all you know, one cow a day for 365 days a year. We all know that. So you get bottlenecks, but they're all definable. Mm. And you can look at last year's records and say, well, actually, what's the maximum number of cows we would expect in the close-up yard and how many animals are actually going through a carving pen? I'll see carving pens with 20 cows in them. And you go, well, I tell you what, that's got to be a nightmare to clean. Because if it's slack time of the year, it's only got one or two cows in it. It's a lot of straw in it. That's not efficient. See, why would you clean it out? And then actually to clean it out is a big job. So you don't do it. So we get in a circle here. So I think quite often I see enough space. I think it's turning that into space that is manageable and getting over this problem of they're difficult to clean so they don't get cleaned. If there's any profitability, make these bits easier. Because as Becca has said before, the health of that calf right from the beginning, or almost like minus before it's born. You know, minus day two, minus day one, day zero. That's how we run the broiler industry. You know, we start managing the environment and the management of the animal that's coming down the line three days before it appears. Mm. And I think that would be very useful. And then we come to the last point that I think this is where the vets have a big role to play, how to clean. I've had an absolute gas over the last few years speaking to groups of vets or groups of farmers and just say, right, how do you clean stuff? And it's one of these points we just chuck out there. And by the way, just clean it. You go, excuse me, 
if they've been batch carving for six weeks and they haven't had a good night's sleep for six weeks, you know, and people were all sort of struggling here, and the carving pen is full of unknown quantities of all sorts of biological debris, it needs clean because that last sort of 10% of carbs, they're the ones that are going to be causing you a hell of a problem two years down the line. And nobody gets to clean that pen, probably when you actually start to get enough space to do it. So these are areas where I think vets can come in and be more objective about how you clean stuff. Again, that's something that's very farm specific, isn't it, Jamie? Something that you, you know, if you're herd health planning as a vet comes into biosecurity and, and hygiene measures that you might take. And it's a really good opportunity to discuss that. And, yeah. you know, certain pathogens are not always on all farms. And it's knowing what you have got to deal with on that farm and making sure that you're implementing the right protocols for that farm. I think I would advocate almost like this as two levels of hygiene. But I think the first one's missing too, Becca. I think there's people that work and they spend time and effort and money on disinfectants and you do the cleaning process. But as a lot of people think that something's clean if you remove the dirty litter and put clean straw in. Again, if you look at the data here, it's very, very common for people to think that if we come back to a carving pen, that keeping it clean is a matter of putting bedding on top after every carving. That's not a bad thing. No, 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 no. It's not a bad thing. But the final point, one of the key mistakes of carving pens that does not work and is still too common, and the veterinary profession really needs to sort of ramp this one up, is to use the carving pen for something else, as in a cow with mastitis, a cow with lameness that you can't put back into the cubicle yard because it's covered in slats and concrete. And from an an animal welfare point of view, it's totally understandable. What's the most relaxed area to put a cow that's struggling? Stick it in the carving pen. It's only got six cows in it, so she'll be fine in there. I get that, but it doesn't work. Mm. It might work for the sick cow, but it absolutely does not work. And the evidence collected from the more advanced dairy industries in the world says that actually it's not a good idea. Drilling down a bit more on that, has there been quite a bit of research on carving pen suitability? And have there been key findings that you can share with us? Um, there's been some, you know, and this is where for me, somebody who's been working for herself, it's really nice to work with the likes of Becker and Boehringer Ingelheim because we're sort of joining forces at different levels. And I find this is a classic area where a lot of empathy because some people are so busy, but there are a number of very basic issues. Heinrichs over in America, quite a long time ago, established over a quarter of all the farms he visited, and talking large numbers, were above a recommended dampness level of 10% relative humidity. Now, don't worry about the numbers. That's our job. But basically, trying to be objective about it, a quarter of all carving pens examined by somebody who knows what they're doing are too damp. And so what's the explanation for that? And the explanation for that is that, you know, again, the data, and we've, we've data from Northern Ireland, working with AFBI and Dr. Gillian Scully and her team over there, looking at real farm data, you know, the, the frequency with which people clean out carving pens varies from a small number of people doing it more or less after every one or two carvings, which comes back to a design issue, to most commonly, it's every three to four weeks. And that might be the norm, but it might not be the right thing to do. And I think, again, this is for the future of the industry. It's now fantastically become normal to feed calves better than we used to 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, very few people thought that neonatal calves born in Britain in the winter were cold. Whereas, in fact, it's self-evident that they were cold. And now 
a lot of work with the likes of Boil Ringer and other companies and the feed companies like Black. The industry has done a fantastic job at going, hang on, if they're cold, why don't we feed them better? And why don't we keep them in better conditions? And there's been superb results. And where I'm very positive about this bit here, about hygiene, is that this is something you can do yourself if you crack the idea that it's worth doing. Dampness, sick cows in carbon pens, absolute no-no, very clear around the world, and it is understandable why. I think the period of time that animals spend in this environment, as in the carving pen, as opposed to the area where they go for a few weeks before they carve. And the value of having an area whereby a small number of animals, or maybe only one animal, can be put right at the end, you know, six hours before it's due to carve, which comes back to resource issues again. If it's not easy to do, it won't be done. It's not going to be done at three o'clock in the morning. So for me, the future is about taking some of that milk profit and sticking into this, which is the future of the industry. Don't get more cows. Get the place easier to stack up. Bedding, cleaning, and the hygiene are really the main issues here. And I think the animal health programs promoted in the UK are quite good here. And I see farmers that have got the concept that, for example, if you've got high-risk animals in terms of the cattle, then... I see more and more people with a wee pen around the corner. It's not convenient. It's a right hassle, but that's where they go and put some of their positive for whatever test they are. You stick the cows in there, keep them out of the way of the rest of the herd. Mm. So I think those are the sort of more prominent things we've got here about suitability. For me, I think the big issue is actually what should a carving pen look like to deliver what the cow, the calf, and the owner the animal keeper wants. So I think there's there's good scope there. Yeah. I think from a calf's perspective, the carving pen has maybe in, in the past been slightly brushed over really, whereas actually that carving pen environment is absolutely vital to the health of that calf going forward. And we know that the level of challenge is vitally important. You know, you can have good colostrum management, you can vaccinate, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's a massively overwhelming challenge, then you're not going to be able to prevent that disease or necessarily prevent mortality, morbidity from it. So it's just absolutely vital that we are looking at the carving pen in alignment with where the calf's going afterwards. Okay. So in terms of working with farmers and then helping them to address some of these issues, what can be done here to help ensure housing and related biosecurity is being done in the right way? I think it's a great area because once we get over the number one hurdle, which I'll come to, a lot of this is something that can be invested in by yourselves once you've cottoned on that there might be value to it. So if I deal with environmental stuff and then hand over to Becker on some of the other mechanisms that can help the whole job. But overall, I've, I'm going to mention John Me again at Chagas because he's been a long-time proponent of improving conditions for the neonatal calf. And he talks about farmer blindness, people blindness. It could be vet blindness. Vets that know me know that I'll often accuse them of this. But it's to do with familiarity. So we mentioned it earlier that it's normal on some farms to have six or 7% mortality. And you're working so hard and juggling so many things and spinning plates that kind of 7%, yeah, you can have a good year and a bad year, but actually the target should be three to four. So the first issue is to get people to slowly realize and to remove this blindness. And the industry has it. I look at what goes on in the dairy sector and think you must be off your heads because other livestock sectors don't accept this level of collateral damage. Nobody said it was easy, but I'm sort of saying, well, there's the clue. 
make it easier. So number one is to get people to accept that their idea of normality is something that's probably costing them money, actually, their losses. So that's number one. And I think the vet industry, isn't it, Becca, there's been putting quite a lot of effort in the last few years in improving their own skill at talking to people. Yeah, I think it's about making things easier for people to do and more effective so that jobs actually get done and get done well. And I think as the vet profession, we're looking at things a lot more holistically. It's not a case of you give X drug and that will make things better because that just doesn't happen on farm. It's not a sort of environment where you can prescribe something that will be a panacea. So yeah, looking at how we can manage certain protocols and practices, whether it's around biosecurity or hygiene or whatever, really, and again, being farm specific. At Bayringer, we're looking at using some lean management tools, which kind of embodies all those things, really. And it's about involving the whole farm team. You know, People that are actually doing those jobs are involved in making decisions about how things are done which can empower them to do that. And they're best placed to tell you how it would work most effectively for them. How would it would it make it easier for them to do these things? And looking at the whole picture, you know, like I say, you, you can't just do one thing and expect that to be a fix-all. You know, if we're talking about scour, for example, we need to look at the carving pen. We need to look at transition cow management. We need to look at colostrum management, colostrum quality. You know, do we think we've got good colostrum quality, but are we actually getting passive transfer? Are we monitoring that in our carve? So it's all about sort of monitoring and coming back around and then honing in on a process such as colostrum management and going through it chronologically, bit by bit, with everybody that's involved and working out where there are sort of pull points that we can change. It may only be small things, but by changing lots of these small things, having a total quality management approach, then it just gives everybody a much better chance of A, being more effective and happier in their work and B, the animals having a a better chance of being resilient and strong and surviving the challenges that they are inevitably going to face. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's that reality facing up to that reality, Becca, isn't it? There's no denial that people can work very hard. But we don't want more cows. We want the right number of better managed cows. And I think this whole business of background, we get obsessed with specific diseases. But in fact, hygiene is just so massively important and it's never going to go away. If you background hygiene, for example, in the, the studies with AFBI and Dr. Gillian Scully, we're looking at hygiene in the calf pen. But I think it comes back to this business of people having being realistic about what's required and uh, this space-time issue. So to be practical, I think the carving pen, quite often, they're far too big. And you'd be better off having a little bit less space to keep your close-up carving cows and then having two or three or four specific carving pens. Now, that requires investment, but they don't need to be very big. So you four meters squared with a hose attached to the wall, firmly nailed down so somebody doesn't nick it. It's always there when it needs to be used. But the point is, we want to open up the idea of having a facility that can be turned around very quickly. We don't need any stories at the moment to understand what turnaround means in terms of human health. You know, we've got to get this slicker, but to get it slicker, we need it to be slicker for people so that the people can then make it slicker for the animals. And we see people working in this direction. You get the drains in the right place. I'm a bore on these subjects, but you know, make it easy to clean from top to bottom. The other one then, if you move on, Becca's talking about the knowledge. To me, it's been a big insight, but a lot of people think that you can clean something moderately and then throw the disinfectant at it, and the science is very clear. That does not work. 
Because if you leave organic matter behind before you start applying a disinfectant, then the efficacy, the usefulness and the impact of that disinfectant is massively reduced because of the presence of the organic matter. So you have to clean before you disinfect. And if the surfaces of your carving pens or your calf pens, where you put them later, are something from the arc and covered in biofilm, then again, we know very clearly that does not work and it is not cleanable. Invest in something for the future and have less of it. And I think this time business is critical. And we're not going to talk a lot about calf pens but one of the issues as the neonatal calf comes out of the carving pen is that people don't have enough space or time to clean other facilities properly. If you have a bunch of calf pens and they're always full, it's a very simple question for the vets to stop ducking. They need to point out, how do you clean these pens properly if you think you can clean them in two hours? It's not possible. That's just background. So that would be my first level of duck chat. How do you clean this normally? And then you go, well, hang about. What if you get mycoplasma bovis in here or crypto in here? Let's discuss how you actually get rid of mycoplasma. I mean, crypto. I have an absolute hoop. Walk around the place and at you and, and I just question. So how do you kill crypto? We know how to kill crypto. But if you think it's hard to kill, that's because you don't know. <laughs> and then we get in a circular thing and we come back to Becca. And there is good information kicking around there about how to do these things. But what we're ignoring is why is it difficult to do? Mm. It's difficult to do because too many of us are blind to the problem. It's not a criticism. It's an observation. They are blind to the scale of the issue. And therefore, what can be got back by investing in other deals? something that I learned from the outdoor pig industry. Imagine trying to clean, turn around these outdoor arcs in Scotland right now. The temperature at two degrees centigrade. It's either two degrees centigrade and, and, and sodden, <laughs> you know, or it's minus three and covered in snow. And again, this is absolutely predictable. What people do that have clocked what's going on here, they might actually change their cleaning strategy because of the time of year. And I've mentioned batch carving before. For me, the vet should be pushing the batch carving people to focus on once you're six weeks in and you're all tired, the facilities are tired too, are completely stuffed with whatever organisms the whole herd has had is lying in that carving pen. And you're sort of going, well, maybe you need to buy and help for a day. Oh, it's money, money, money. No, buy and help. And once a bit of space starts opening up, clean a pen thoroughly. And what does thoroughly mean? Well, thoroughly probably means steam cleaning. It probably needs a specific disinfectant that you would get with advice from your vet. And certainly from the outdoor sales job, and then back to Becca here, it's critical that your vaccination program on the dam is solid. So if you're vaccinating for salmonella or eco or something like that, and you know that probably it's going to be very difficult six weeks into batch carving to get everything clean, then make sure that back down the line, your vaccination policy on your cows or in the outdoor pig industry on your sows is tight as a duck's backside because that's what it needs to be to take the pressure off the animal. So we go on to the knowledge, really. You know, I think that's where the vets come in. Yeah, it's, it's kind of having that knowledge and sharing it with clients and helping them understand why they're doing things. 
years ago it was more a case of we told farmers what to do and they kind of did it and, and that was that whereas now it's absolutely a two-way process it's mm. about discussing what you need to do from a health and a welfare perspective but how that can work for you on your farm and why are you doing that you know if you just tell somebody to do something they don't necessarily engage with it um, and, you know, explaining to the person that is rearing the calves why they need a specific disinfectant or why they need to do something a certain way. Once they realise that it's not just somebody dictating to them what they do, it's done for a reason. I think it just helps them to understand and get on board with doing that, really. You know, as far as vaccination goes, it is key in managing a lot of these diseases, scour and BRD in calves. But it's also key that we look at all those other things and make those jobs easier so that we get the most efficacy out of these vaccines. You don't want to pay for a scour vaccine like Fencobis that we have at Boehringer to put it into the dam and then not manage your colostrum correctly. There's no point. You have to do all these different things, have a total quality management approach. Because if you're not managing your colostrum correctly and you're not getting passive transfer in the calves, then those antibodies that you've just popped into your dry cow are not being passed on to the animal that they're actually aimed for. So, yeah, it's really important to kind of look at all those things and also explain to our clients why we're doing those things and how they work and get them on board in deciding what works best for them on their farm. So with the management and hygiene practices variable across farms, as we've heard, vets can still play a key role in helping to change the narrative and making things better on that individual farm by working together with the farms. Yeah. And it is about a team approach, really. Yeah. The farm side of things, the vets, animal researchers like Jamie, all coming together with, you know, everyone's got a lot of knowledge. Farmers have got a lot of knowledge that we don't have as vets and sharing that together and coming up with the best approach that works for you. And, you know, herd health planning is a really good time to kind of broach these things. And often you might do a herd health plan. And there may be something going on that farm that you didn't realise was going on or something that isn't going on that you thought was going on. And it just initiates that conversation, really. And that can be the difficult bit is how you do initiate these conversations. Because if you just pile in and say, oh, you know, you're doing that wrong, it puts people off on the wrong foot and, and it's not helpful. So it's trying to find a way to kind of come together as a, a team to do it. You know, as far as young stock are concerned, a lot of practices these days will have a specific young stock group or a heifer rearing group that can be really helpful for discussions, meetings, benchmarking, but also rolling it out to doing things like weighing animals, vaccinating animals, you know, on behalf of the farmer. So that takes away some of those jobs. It's a bit like Jamie saying, if you've got a seasonally carving herd and it's all been going on for, for six weeks and everything's dirty, everyone's tired and stressed out and actually spending a little bit of money to help resolve that can be really effective. So spending a bit of money to measure things like passive transfer, so whether that's blood sampling calves or measuring colostrum quality or weighing animals and weighing, making sure they get weighed on a regular basis rather than just ad hoc or, or not at all. That can actually be something that has a cost benefit to it and takes the onus off the farmer not being able to have that time. You know, they are time poor and doing those things for them takes that away and then means that they can then look at those results and see where things are going well, where things are not going so well, you know, where improvements can be made. And it's, you know, again, it's that total quality management going round and round in circle monitoring. Okay, we've flagged up something's not quite right here. What can we do to improve that? And, you know, you just keep going round really. But it's really important that it is the whole farm staff that are involved and that everybody that is likely to be doing those jobs is involved in decision making so that it gives them the most effective and empowering way of doing so. Excellent. Right. So moving on from there, in terms of having the conversations on farm, are there good resources out there that vets can tap into or direct their clients to to help improve housing in the general sort of welfare situation? There's loads of resources out there. AHDB have got a lot of good stuff. At Boehringer, we've got our Calf Matters, hashtag Calf Matters website, which has got lots of great resources for vets and for farmers around calf management, not specifically housing, but I'll pass that over to Jamie to guide you towards some resources for that. Yes, as Becca says, there's a growing amount of information here 
I think we need to be very careful. I'm very conscious as an outsider who doesn't have to get up at half past four in the morning to milk cows. That there can be a lot of resources, but people maybe don't get around to. They'd rather watch the FA Cup replay than read something written by Becca Cavill for Boringer Ingleside. Even though that's true, Becca. Absolutely, no, no, no. If I was them, I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of information, and I think that perhaps the vets can act as a filter here for ultimately the clients on the farm. And Becca mentioned HDB. Go on the website; it's all free. But I think perhaps the vet can help with the filtering. I certainly try that myself. There's so much knowledge. The the deal is how we filter that and get it through to somebody who can use it to the benefit of their business and their time and their cattle and their calves. Farmers need something succinct, don't they? Something that you know is tangible and is not going to take them hours to read so that they can watch the FA Cup replay instead. Yeah. You know, we've got lots of sheets that are just one side and give the information that they need and nothing else really, which is just easy for reference, isn't it? I think on the housing side, I would just go straight to AHDB mm-hmm. on the websites there. And certainly coming out of AFB with two publications about to hit the press, one related to sort of young stock housing from new and the other related to how you improve what you've got, which is actually the bigger area in terms of potential for the future to making some small changes within your existing infrastructure. But I think the primary issue here is we need to shift what is normal. You know, so Becker has mentioned repeatedly the, the whole point about measuring stuff on farms so we can be more objective about what's going on. The problem with this is the suggestion that at farm level, we're already too busy how the heck do you expect us to measure this and do that and do the other? For me, my plea would be, I'll tell you what, maybe knock off a cow or two here. Every cow you have needs fed, it needs the manure removed, it needs the infrastructure, 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 and it's incredibly demanding. And I think the future needs to be, let's improve the quality of what we do. And to realize that target, we need to be realistic about what's going on in front of you every day. and so. Making some of the tasks easier is an important way of getting towards there. And so the defense of I'm too busy means that that's probably why we need to sit down with a cup of tea and say, right, okay, what's important here? And get rid of this blindness about what's acceptable. It's normal to have more than half your cars getting scour in the first four weeks of life. Really? (laughs) Well, what's lovely about some of the work done objectively in farms, which is our job and Becca's job, because we go and measure, we don't ask you to measure, we go and measure. In fact, there's always, in all the published research, a very wide range whereby basically doing the same job, in inverted commas, there's some people, so a huge amount of work done measuring background bacteria in feed buckets, inside pens, inside pens after the bead cleaned. And some people are doing a pretty good job and other people are keeping young calves immunologically naive. There they are, ready to go. They're the future in two and a half years' time. And basically, they're eating dirt. And the water quality is appalling. And the feed buckets only get washed once a week. And they're dirty when they finish washing them. So these are the facts which is my job, doesn't make me popular. But I think that what comes out of that is, look, here's the range of background bacterial counts, normal counts, in feed buckets. Look at all these over here. They're clean. 
they're clean and they're clean and they're clean. But on the other end here, you would not believe the numbers are stupid, so they don't mean anything. It's like economics. But you are talking billions of viable bacteria in 100 mil. And some of them have got E. coli and salmonella in front of them. That's what we measure. Well, I don't think having shit in your milk bucket is a very good idea for something that's immunologically naive and where more than half the calves get scammed. And so I don't think we need to be particularly sexy about this. Let's open our eyes and look at what's going on. But I think for me, the most important one, help by the vets and Bullringer and yourselves, let's be realistic about what's possible. There's too much going on, which is impossible. We're asking people too much. Step back. Let's get some smaller carving pens that we can manage to the degree that it will be beneficial to the heart and understand how to do the job properly. We don't need more information. I think it's the difficult bit of opening our eyes a bit about what's going on. I think with diseases like BRD and Scouter, we're not aiming to fully eliminate these diseases because we're in a farm environment with live animals. And the way these diseases and pathogens work, it's not possible to do that. What we are trying to achieve is reducing the challenge and reducing the severity and incidence of these diseases as much as we possibly can. And that can be done to a really, really high level. But it needs all these things to be looked at, not just one or two things. So I think you need to manage expectations of clients as well, really. We, you know, we're not going to give a drug or a vaccine and expect that to then mean that there's no disease at all, because that is pretty much impossible, really. But we can modify things and we can make things better from a health and a welfare perspective. And that's kind of what we're aiming to do as a team. Well, fantastic. Really fascinating discussions. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. There's loads of stuff to take away from there. So thank you both, Becca and Jamie. That's it for Vet Times podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.